0: Welcome back to Crisis Management, a Columbus Business First podcast about seeing your business through the coronavirus pandemic. I'm reporter Carry Ghosh. Today's guest is Dr. Hal Paz, who in June marked one year at Ohio State University in the newly created position of, and this is a long one, Executive Vice President and Chancellor for Health Affairs, as well as CEO of its Wexner Medical Center. In that role, he has oversight of the $4 billion hospital system and faculty physician practice, plus the university health plan and all seven colleges in the health sciences, not just the medical school, but nursing, pharmacy, and the other professions. A physician and engineer, Paz came to Columbus after five years as chief medical officer for Aetna, Inc. Before that, he led a fellow Big Ten academic medical center and med school, and State. We talked about his first year, how he's trying to better integrate and coordinate education among those seven colleges, the response to the pandemic, OSU's reinvigorated anti-racism agenda, and much more. I hope it's enlightening, and thanks as always for listening. All right, welcome to Business First, and I hope you are all well. You and yours
1: doing well thank you hope the same for you and your family
0: yeah we've been great and yeah. i talked to you a year ago mm-hmm. um, and you said the reason you wanted to uh, you had been in academic medicine you'd gone to the private sector the insurance world mm-hmm. led a transformation there you wanted to come back to academic medicine specifically at osu because quote I want to be at the place that defines the next century of what healthcare looks like. Well, you didn't know what this century was gonna look like then. So it's uh, not how you're, you expected your first year to be wrapping up. How has you know, that spirit that you were embracing of collaboration and innovation uh, really carried uh, OSU, the colleges that you oversee and the medical center through this crisis?
1: No one would have wanted it to happen this way. I'm sure that's a a statement that you're not gonna hear any arguments about. But if you recall, what we had talked about was this transformation of, of how do you transform a hospital into a health system, and then from a health system into a health platform that reaches into people's homes to deliver care directly into the home, leveraging resources in the local community to leverage what are the things that really matter about health and well being. So, not just healthcare per se, but social, behavioral, environmental determinants of health against the genetics. And that's what we had talked about. And if you recall, I had talked about things like digital health, telehealth, and these different solutions that would be transformational. And then we could lay upon that these seven colleges of the health sciences. And use that health platform as a way to educate the next generation of healthcare professional in interprofessional teams and begin that early, early in the curriculum and in the training. So that was, that was the vision. What has happened in the past year is incredible, unbelievable, remarkable. Again, in part, we got there because of this pandemic, but a lot of it already was, was going through a process of change. And, and the key ingredient in all of this is innovation. It is the defining characteristic of a university. So here we sit at The Ohio State University, a top tier flagship land grant public research university, third largest campus in America, with the health sciences being a significant part of that. Arguably, if it were a campus unto itself, the largest health science campus in the nation with 10,000 students, and then the Wexner Medical Center, a system of seven hospitals and multiple ambulatory care sites all across the region reaching into a community. But where we've taken it now is we're reaching into homes through telehealth. We're looking at digital solutions. We've developed mobile vans that literally go into local communities. And we're finding ways to work with agencies and organizations in those local communities to address the issues of disparity that look at social determinants, behavioral determinants, and environmental determinants of health. And then back in those research laboratories, looking at genetics and genomics and understanding what that contribution is to overall health and well-being. And as you put that all together, we have this new framework, this new vision for the future that I really and passionate about this becomes the defining characteristic of what an academic health center is in the future. And we've moved away from that model of Abraham Flexner in the early part of the 1900s, a medical school and a hospital joined at the hip. We are so far past that now, where we have not just a medical school, but multiple schools and colleges where we're focusing on interprofessional education because we know that a lot of the gaps that occur in healthcare delivery occur because we haven't thought a lot about how do you train a nurse and a doctor and a pharmacist and a public health worker and everyone involved in in this process together at the same time, teaching them the same language, teaching them the same process of care from day one, as opposed to dropping them into a healthcare setting and then retraining them or trying to understand why things are not lining up the way they should. So, you know, what have we seen in the past year? Because that's really the question that you would want to ask. And and it's, well, we went from 50 telehealth visits in the month of February to roughly now about 2,800 a day. We've done, I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands of telehealth visits. We have mobile vans now going into the community. We've set up initiatives in the near east side of Columbus. We're working on. Health disparities as an important contributor to uh, health and well-being, and understanding the issues of premature, unnecessary premature death. We just hired, and this person will be arriving uh, around July one. On July one, our new associate vice chancellor for interprofessional education, who will be coming here to coordinate all the things I just talked about between the seven colleges and developing a curriculum so that there is shared learning, working towards shared language and uh, teaching into the curricula of these various schools, the process of care that we need to develop to have in place to address these multiple determinants of health and well-being. And last but not least, we've been leveraging the notion of innovation literally every single day. We have over a hundred research projects going on at the Wexner Medical Center right now across Ohio State University addressing the COVID pandemic. Early on in the pandemic, we were able to do 40 tests a day for COVID, 40. We partnered with Battelle, talk about innovation. We partnered with Battelle, we created a platform for COVID testing here at the medical center that could do up to 4,500 tests a day, PCR tests. On some of those machines, the turnaround time is 45 minutes. The sensitivity of those tests is over 95%. And then as we quickly ramped that up, we realized that the country was running out of the test swabs, the things that they did the nasopharyngeal swabs with, because much of that was being made in Italy early in the pandemic that was devastated by the infection. So we got 3D printers from the College of Engineering and the College of Dentistry, and we started actually making the swabs ourselves. And then when we needed even more, we partnered with a, with a company up in Toledo, Ohio that had 3D printers and we made even uh, more swabs. Then very quickly we realized there was a shortage of the, of the solution, it's called viral transport media that you put the swabs into nationally. So we got the recipe from the World, World Health Organization and the CDC and we started making our own viral transport media. And we were able to make so much of it on scale, we were shipping it to other states. One Saturday, I got a call from Mayor de Blasio's office in New York and they asked if we could supply them with viral transport media. So we shipped leaders to the city of New York and we gave them the software to use their 3D printers to make their own swabs. We've had, uh, we developed an antibody test for COVID-19. We partnered with Patel in, in other ways. We're now doing other types of research on on the pandemic, again, leveraging innovation. And it obviously doesn't stop there with the infectious disease aspects of what's going on. There's continued to be extraordinary work at the James Cancer Hospital, at our Comprehensive Cancer Institute in Immuno-Oncology. I mean, we could spend hours talking about all the innovation and research that's going on here. And of course, using that kind of innovation in terms of technology and uh, information technology in terms of digital and a lot of different solutions that are being developed. One key thing, what has continued to be so gratifying for me is the, the spirit that exists here. And you know, when I was coming to Columbus early on, I had heard about this Buckeye spirit <laughs> It's incredible. The, the dedication, uh, the, the, the devotion of our workforce to addressing the pandemic and to really moving forward, this vision and strategy that I talked about of creating this health platform has been extraordinary. We've done a, a remarkable job of keeping this workforce healthy. I know there you know, patients have concerns about coming back to the hospital setting to come to outpatient clinics. Remarkably, very few of our own employees have become infected. And those that did through contact tracing, it appears that many of them, more than half, got infected out in the community, not in the workplace. So, you know, we've worked exceptionally hard to keep our own workforce healthy and safe. We're working exceptionally hard to keep our clinics and the hospitals safe so that if someone needs to come in now for routine care that they've been putting off, preventative tests, diagnostic tests for cancer, for example, things that we don't want people to put off, they should come in feeling safe and secure. And we've taken all that knowledge, and now we're partnering with companies in the region and academic institutions in the region to take that knowledge so they can now ramp up and return to work because that's, that's so important for them. So all that under, we never shut down during the pandemic. You know, we stayed open. So everything we learned about how you stay open in the middle of a pandemic like this, we can now take that innovation, that understanding, and now help others to reopen their, their businesses, their educational institutions, because that's what we all wanna do very much.
0: So you, uh, you answered about three of my next questions, but that lets me uh, pick up some little details from them. Were you surprised by the speed with which telehealth was adopted? And are you concerned that insurers that granted emergency coverage will drop it? Or do you think they see the value uh, that it's not just an emergency response, but it's actually uh, pretty effective?
1: Was I surprised with the speed at which it was adopted? No. I mean, when I came here, you know, I spent a lot of time talking with everyone about why we need to do this. Uh, we had some, as I said, and we were doing e-consultation as well to help other hospitals in the region. No, I, I, I don't think so. I mean, this, this institution is robust with technology. We have a phenomenal technology infrastructure at the Wexner Medical Center. So the capability was there. It was the need to adopt quickly, and it was to get our physicians, frankly, you know, we have 1800 physicians that work here. In February, 2% of the workforce, the physician workforce was using telehealth. Today, 98% of the physician workforce uses telehealth. So it was a matter of rapid education, putting the systems in place, and then getting patients to accept it. And that in many cases was a bigger challenge than getting the physician workforce to accept it. And and I'll be frank with you, we still have some challenges that have to be addressed, not just here in Columbus, but nationally. The elderly, a number of the elderly patients are having challenges using this technology. They're not like millennials that, you know, this is second nature to them, number one. Number two, we have rural communities where bandwidth challenges continue to exist, and it's not so easy. We have communities that are uh, underserved, that economically are disadvantaged, where there are bandwidth and access challenges. So we continue to work on ways to address that, again, harnessing the power of technology. Now, with regard to payers, and I know that all too well, having come from the health insurance industry, uh, as you said earlier, I wanna continue to make a compelling case for why this adds value and not waste, why it can actually enhance health and well-being, and ultimately, if we do this well, save on costs and improve outcomes. Because frankly, that's what insurers look for all the time. If you can make a case for, we're going to improve outcomes, and ultimately in doing so, reduce spend, and that's the whole notion of value-based reimbursement, I have found over and over again that insurers will, in fact, respond favorably to that. If instead you have one more channel to deliver care and it doesn't add any value and it's redundant, in other words, patients have telehealth visits and then what do they do? They just go back to doing what they were going to do anyway. I understand the argument. So, you know, we're a few months into this at a national level and we have to continue to refine it. the the good old fashioned doctor's office visit wasn't invented in in two months either, right? So we have to continue to evolve this over the next several months. I think the case is enormously strong. And that's why myself and the other uh, uh, health system CEOs here in the greater Columbus region, you know, all wrote to a, a letter to the dispatch indicating that this is something that as a nation, we should take very seriously and uh, continue to cover this type of healthcare delivery because as it matures, as it develops, it becomes incredibly important for our patients. And I think what's really important is when it's embedded into an existing health system infrastructure, when we have the electronic health record information for a patient, when the patient has a relationship with our primary care physicians and our specialists, and now we offer another channel for them to have that access to care, we're increasing access and we're offering the promise of identifying ways to improve quality of care and outcomes and still work to reduce cost. And that's the, unique, that's the unique attributes of doing this through existing systems like our own. And you know, frankly, I don't care if a patient's getting care across the street at another institution or our own, it's this opportunity to reach out to the patient and have this level of connectivity that creates an opportunity for personalized health, and that's really what we're looking for here: our opportunities to create a personalized health experience for each individual that needs to access care.
0: Uh, financial numbers that uh, were sent to me yesterday uh, indicate that you're off your budget by single digits, um, per- percentage-wise. At the beginning, statewide um, hospitals were expecting to miss out on about a third. Of their revenue, so I mean, obviously, you're a multi-specialty center. Cancer doesn't stop. You're a trauma center. Car crashes don't stop. But why else was uh, OSU able to come out of this not nearly as damaged as many other health systems?
1: Early on, we made the decision to not offer elective care, and and of course, then the state, um, you know, made that a directive and we we stuck to that. It was the right thing to do. We had to preserve PPE. We had to make sure there were adequate beds available for the surge in case it went past level one. Level one is where you use existing resources to care for COVID positive patients. As a, as a, uh, a region, greater Columbus region, we never went to surge level two. We never went to surge level three, which would have used the convention center that we had put together with the other health systems in this region. We worked very hard to conserve resources wherever we could, where there was waste that wasn't used for the pandemic to not spend money on those things. And I think that was very important. It wasn't hard, frankly. No travel, well, who's gonna travel anywhere in the middle of a pandemic? So we put things in place to do that. And then it was a combination of the things I said before. We were uh, a diagnostic lab for the state, and more than half of the tests we did were for non-OSU Wexner Medical Center patients. I think the most recent statistic I saw was that one out of every nine patients tested in Ohio was tested here. So it was a combination of aligning our resources with what was the demand and the need, which also happened to be where the reimbursement was coming from, with uh, curtailing services that uh, were frankly not going to be necessary at the time. And then, of course, the CARES dollars were very, very important as well. Every, you know, all the hospitals that uh, were eligible, I'm you know, received care dollars in different forms, and that, that made a difference. Don't get me wrong. I'm enormously proud of what our 30,000 employees, faculty, and staff were able to accomplish here at, at the Wexner Medical Center. And we were able to do it without laying off one person Without furloughing anyone, without eliminating jobs, which for me personally is really, really important, because at a time like this, when you're asking everyone to rally, the last thing you want to do is to send a message to them that they can't be sure that they're secure. So that was, you know, very important. Now, you know, we tried to eliminate unnecessary overtime and all the other things, but we wanted to remain true to our workforce. So far, uh, I've, exceptionally pleased with how we're doing against budget, particularly compared to our peer institutions, which are the academic, the 100 uh, or so academic health centers at major universities across the nation. Exceptionally proud of that. But now we are looking very carefully at next year at what do we need to do to eliminate any kind of waste and inefficiency here at the med center. Again, we're not talking about eliminating jobs. What we're talking about is what are the things in our supply chain that we can make more efficient? What are the kinds of things that are non-people expenditures that we can uh, eliminate without in any way at all negatively impacting the care we deliver to be prepared in case for us, there's a second wave later in the late fall, early winter of this year, because you know the last thing anyone who's in charge of an institution like this would wanna do is say, okay, we did a great job. We got through the fiscal year. And now on to fiscal year 2021, not knowing what's going to happen. So we are preparing for that. We want to be ahead of the curve. We have this momentum going into it. We'll uh, hope for the best, but plan for the opposite. And that's, that's how we plan to go through the fiscal year next year as well.
0: The outpatient construction uh, of the, uh, the campuses around the suburbs and the west campus right. uh, preparation for the new tower were not among the construction projects that have been suspended because of the pandemic and the loss of revenue. Does anything need to change about those projects? And I mean, are you even thinking differently about beds and the need for an 840 bed tower going forward?
1: That's a great question. So a couple of things. One, there were a couple of projects that were well underway. Our 250,000 square foot ambulatory care facility in New Albany, that's just moving forward other projects were put on pause until we we wanted everyone's attention focused on the pandemic A and B we wanted to have a, a really excellent understanding of the financials that were everyone we were going through as we were preparing for some extraordinary capital expenditures that bed tower is somewhere in the neighborhood of about 2 billion dollars as you know so you know that these are not trivial amounts of money we're looking for ways obviously to make that as cost efficient as we can. We, we did not bring that forward as we'd originally planned to our board at its um, last meeting. And we're going through all the analysis you just talked about. That being said, in general terms, all these projects are still what we plan to do. Will we be modifying them to one degree or another? Yeah, the bed tower, for example, I'm going to put a lot more emphasis now as we think about how that tower is designed around critical care services, around how is that going to be most efficiently utilized during the next pandemic or whatever happens next. Because shame on us for not planning a building that's going to be around for decades to not anticipate these kinds of things. Now one question that I'm sure you know you or others would ask is well, Okay, so you just you're telling us you're doing all this telehealth, right? 2,500 visits a day and only, that's only going to increase. Why do you want more ambulatory care? Why do you want a bed tower? Well, it's very simple. What we've learned from this bed, from this pandemic is, in as much as I expect to see the transformation I talked about when I first arrived here a year ago occurring, care in the home, digital, virtual care, One lesson we've all learned is, is that you need inpatient facilities. And in fact, it's these kind of institutions, it's the Wexner Medical Centers of of the country and others like us, that take the lion's share of providing the most sophisticated care for the sickest patients. I mean, we have the statistics on how many COVID-positive patients that were critically ill we cared for here in Ohio compared to others. And to me, that is the strongest indication I can think of that we need a modern bed tower that was built in this century in this decade to anticipate the needs of the most critically ill patients because at the end of the day in as much as we're going to deliver more and more care out in the community we have to have these facilities because other hospitals frankly are not in a position like we are to build them and to support them so that's a responsibility that we have to the state and we have to fulfill it that bed tower over, as you said, over 800 beds, you know, the first 500 beds or so are replacement beds for a hospital building that had been built decades and decades ago. The other 300 plus beds are additional beds because one thing we've learned over and over again is we need the additional beds. We're constantly running, you know, at occupancies over 80% and days when we have over 90% occupancy.
0: Even now?
1: Even now, even today. You know, we quickly after um, after the restriction on elective cases was lifted and we could care for patients overnight. Within a matter of days, we were back to what we call the yellow and red zone. Mm -hmm. Green means we're under under 70% occupancy, and very quickly we were back into the into the yellow and red zone. Red is over 90% occupancy for our hospitals, and that you know means that we have to get patients cared for and then we have to uh, make sure they're going to the right place uh, at the right time in their care delivery. So that just speaks volumes about the need. And ambulatory care, couldn't agree more that there's gonna be so much we can do for patients in their homes, but when they need a procedure, when they need examinations, when they need sophisticated outpatient technology and even outpatient surgery, having care centers in places like New Albany are extraordinarily important. And then last but not least West Campus so West Campus has our, our research facility there which is going you to know, house our immuno-oncology center it's going to be research uh, for uh, for cancer care for the, uh, for a comprehensive cancer center and a host of other initiatives so extraordinarily important our out our ambulatory care building is ambulatory care for the James again, The James needs more ambulatory care space, but it's also our partnership with Nationwide Children's Hospital for a proton beam accelerator. And the leadership at Nationwide is still extraordinarily supportive of moving forward. We need a proton beam accelerator for this region, for this community, for children and adults. So we're fully committed to moving forward with these projects. They're absolutely necessary. Nothing has changed because of the new ways that we can deliver care. How we how we modify those buildings and adapt them to what we've learned in the past three four months yes we're going to make modifications to them but the basic bricks and mortar are still very much needed and I'll say one last thing given my comments about interprofessional education for me that interprofessional health science building here in the middle of this campus uh, that we started the construction on earlier this year needs to go forward we're you know looking at at the financials that's not a Building that's supported by clinical revenue—that's a building that's totally about education and how we bring together the types of curricula that I just talked about. So uh, we put a pause on that construction. I am fully committed to moving forward uh, on uh, completing the construction of that building as quickly as we possibly can.
0: OSU had already been involved, in all the health systems had been involved in addressing the social determinants of health and uh, inequities in access, in outcome but now more publicly is being discussed racism and its contribution to those inequities. So how, does, how do, does your research apparatus and your clinical apparatus insert itself in addressing racism as a public health crisis?
1: This is something that when I was at Penn State, it was a tremendous area of interest for me when I went to Aetna. I brought with me those concepts, and the company as a whole uh, became very involved in a number of initiatives around social determinants of health. There's a long list of of things we were able to accomplish there in industry as well, and I'm enormously proud of the things that we did around our our nationwide opioid initiative, uh, the care we had delivered in homes, particularly in uh, communities that were economically challenged, with social workers and and then having nurses go in the home. So a lot of work had been going on there. When I came here, I brought all those experiences and lessons learned with me and felt it was exceptionally important to address these determinants of health. So, you know, it's transportation, it's housing, it's food deserts, it's education, it's poverty. And as we said a few weeks ago, it's also racism as a social determinant of health. And there is data that we're seeing just during this pandemic in terms of the differences in outcomes, in terms of mortality rate, for example, infection rate for certain groups, for example, African-Americans in our communities. And we already know the data that we've talked about through our moms to be program, for example, with infant mortality rates as well and disparities that occur. So we have this data. What's exceptionally important is that we act on it and that we address it alongside the other social determinants of health. And we are doing these things. I mentioned moms-to-be earlier. We have our our mobile van. We have the work that's going on at uh, OSU Wexner East Hospital and the ambulatory care clinics. During the pandemic, we put together community care kits where we went into the Near East Side providing community care kits for residents of those communities so that they had the basic tools to protect themselves from the spread, including educational materials. We set up a testing clinic to uh, try to test more individuals. And we're of course incorporating all of this very heavily into the educational programming of our students, into the curricula. It's exceptionally important. We can't just stop here. There's more and more that we have to do. Last week we had a town hall here in a, a uh, employee-wide town hall at the Wexner Medical Center to uh, address the issue of, of racism and Black Lives Matter. And we at the town hall released uh, the action plan from our two internal, our two committees here at the Wexner Medical Center that have been long-standing. My, my notion was the, the events of the past several months that have come to for are enormously tragic and uh, has received a lot of attention. But we all know this has been going on for quite some time. And this is the time to act. And we thought rather than form a blue ribbon panel that would write some report and the report, you know, is, is read and then nothing happens next. And I'm not, I'm not saying it would happen here, but we've seen that pattern in the past. There's some set of circumstances is terribly upsetting that that elevates an issue to the front pages of the paper. And then there's a lot of attention given to it. And then we're back to where we, are, we were. What we wanted to do at the Wexner Medical Center was not to reinvent this wheel. We wanted to take existing committees that we have. We have an internal committee that focuses on diversity of our workforce and focuses on, on all the issues around diversity. And then we have an external committee as well, that that does the same thing, focusing on the community. What are the types of things that we can do around issues of of racism out in the community and how we address disparities? And what we did was we brought them together and they developed this action plan. And we said, what we were gonna do now is perhaps something different than others may be doing, or that maybe even we've done in the past, which is to take that action plan and to very specifically say, what are the investments that we need to make focusing on our own workforce internally, internally, as well as investments we need to make in the community around issues of, of disparity and racism in the community, and then mark that against progress. What are the outcomes that we seek to achieve? How are we gonna measure those outcomes and then be very transparent inside our organization, and with the community at large as to how we are doing as an organization, and to specifically focus on healthcare as our greatest point of leverage to address many of these issues that we're confronting as a nation, because that's what we do here. We are engaged in healthcare. So, how can we develop initiatives that address health and well being as it relates to racism? and really focus on racism as a social determinant of health. And we have these processes underway. We're gonna make public our measures and we're gonna to continue to report on an ongoing basis how we're doing. I think that's an important responsibility and I think from the vantage point of accountability it is not only uh, important, but is absolutely necessary. You know, I, I know that a lot of institutions, academic health center, hospitals, and, and other organizations around the country are, are looking at you know, the tragedy of the past uh, several weeks, uh, particularly as it relates to, to racism and brutality and, and the whole notion of Black Lives Matter. And everyone is doing something. I think there's a, a, a huge responsibility we have just as great as everyone, but in particular for us, because we have made so much progress. This institution has been ranked by Forbes as among the top five in the country in terms of the diversity of our workforce at the Wexner Medical Center. I mean, the top four are us, Procter & Gamble, SAP, the the software company, and Henry Ford Health System. Number two, our College of Medicine has been consistently ranked among the top uh, four in the nation in terms of underrepresented African-American students when you exclude the four traditionally black medical schools in this nation. So this is these are areas that have been of tremendous importance here for a long time. What I don't want to do is spend lots of time emphasizing what we've accomplished and I'd rather focus on the gaps and the opportunities that we need to move forward on because quite frankly if we don't provide the leadership for what needs to happen in the future among our peers, quite frankly, who will? So I wanna put a tremendous amount of pressure on us and accountability to have these transparent measures of success in addressing these these three issues that have been tragically reported now in the paper, literally every every single day, the protests, all all the issues that uh, we're confronting as a nation um, at the same time as we're, as we're confronting this pandemic. I could go through a whole list of initiatives, but you know everything in the community from, uh, from our PAC program, Partners in Achieving Community Transformation. I mentioned Moms to Be, the Mid-Ohio Pharmacy with, with an F, our Community Health Day on the Near East Side. And then internally, the work we're, we're doing on implicit bias training, which has had national recognition, uh, the work we continue to do in terms of diversity and through our recruitment process, uh, supporting our employee workforce. Obviously, the focus over the past several weeks has been around the issue of Black Lives Matters. It's extraordinarily important, but we're also looking at other groups as well. Our uh, Hispanic, Hispanic, Latino uh, groups, LGBTQ. I mean, we did an initiative earlier this year on LGBTQ training for our, our workforce and our leadership in particular. So, These are areas that are all extraordinarily important, but right now, given the tragedy of of the past several weeks and months, um, we're focusing on this whole uh, issue of of Black Lives Matter and we wanna focus on it internally in terms of continued training and and our programs around diversity, but then importantly out in the community because we need to have, and it's our responsibility to have an impact in the community in this way because we truly do believe that racism is a social determinant of health.
0: You have a change of presence coming up and the college president who hired you is a fellow physician. So you had an affinity there. I'm sure you've gotten a chance to meet the new president. So yeah. I just was gonna ask if you have words of farewell and words of welcome.
1: Michael Drake is a force of nature and it's been a privilege to work for him and to work with him at this university. I owe him a debt of gratitude for recruiting me here to The Ohio State University. Uh, we are so fortunate to have had him here as our president. First of all, with respect to the Wexner Medical Center, you know there have been transitions as we all know, and, and he's been a steadying force by virtue of his role as president, but also quite frankly, as, a, as an internationally known uh, physician, ophthalmologist and, and scholar in, in that area. The work that he's done at this university in terms of a whole host of initiatives, but particularly focusing on our undergraduates to create access and affordability for healthcare, to create opportunities for these students as they graduate is nothing short of extraordinary. It's been a model nationally, and um, uh, we all have enormous pride in what Michael Drake has accomplished here during his presidency. With regard to our new incoming president, you're right, she's not a physician, but we're both uh, fellow engineers. I went to graduate school in in life science engineering, and uh, so we have that that common place. Um, I've had a chance to meet with incoming President Johnson now. On a couple of occasions, we've had some really great conversations about the university as a whole and, and the Wexner Medical Center, and I'm very, very excited about her being here. She brings this unique combination of having been um, at top tier research universities, including two that have really highly respected academic health centers, Johns Hopkins and Duke. She was provost at Hopkins, so um, she has a really outstanding understanding of the unique role that a place like the Wexner Medical Center plays within its university. Uh, second of all, I mentioned earlier in, in my comments to you, the importance of innovation. Here we have someone that is a, a highly respected innovator. Uh, she's, been award, she's received national awards for her work there. She started a company. She has industry experience, which as you know, for me personally, is I think a great experience to have for all of us that are here in the academy uh, in these leadership roles. So she brings that And then she also brings extraordinary experience in government service as well. So, I mean, I I have to say the Board of Trustees deserves an enormous debt of gratitude from all of us for their work with the faculty and students that were involved in the search process uh, to arrive at uh, the recruitment of Christina Johnson as our next president. So uh, I couldn't be happier.
0: There's been extraordinary collaboration among the health systems uh, responding to the pandemic. But as you know, there's also a, a long history of very intense and you know, uh, understandable competition. Sure. Uh, I'm assuming you've gotten to at least uh, virtually meet Lorraine Lutton uh, sure. then you've had the past year um, with Tim Robinson and Dr. Markovich. Sure. So uh, how are you all going to continue to get along when we come out of this the other side?
1: Sure. You know, I've been... Uh, at a number of academic health centers in in my career. And it's no different here than it was in central Pennsylvania or in central New Jersey, for that matter. And there are opportunities for collaboration. And we are all nonprofits. And we have that responsibility to the communities that we serve to collaborate when it makes good sense for us to have collaboration. But at the same time, you know, uh, in this country, we put a a premium on competition as well, because it's great for all of us to uh, continue to think of ways to be more customer focused, to innovate and to develop programs that really meet the needs of our communities. And that's great, I think it's terrific. And I think all the safeguards in place that we see around the country to continue to support that are, are, are terrific, don't have a problem with any of it. So where it makes sense, we have to continue to collaborate and where it makes sense. I, you know, they're still friends and colleagues and and I wish them all well, we should uh, compete. Now that said, among all the institutions that you mentioned, uh, we are also not just a health system, but we're also an academic health center. And we have all these educational programs, the 10,000 students that I mentioned before. And that's a resource that I believe we have a responsibility to collaborate with those other systems. Nationwide Children's is the home of our Department of Pediatrics. And uh, without Nationwide Children's, one of the top children's hospitals in America, as that clinical home for our Department of Pediatrics, we would have a very different College of Medicine. And it's also a resource for our College of Nursing and many of our other colleges as well at OSU. We have an affiliation agreement with Mount Carmel. And we have opportunities again in the academic world to uh, continue to develop that. And Steve and I have talked, Steve Markman and I have talked about ways that we can collaborate further. We collaborate on things like emergency medical services in this community, but are there other natural areas for collaboration while at the same time, they provide patient care in certain service lines that are you know, very similar to ours. And I think it's great for people in this community to have robust, successful, health systems that will meet the needs of the communities. And this gives everybody a choice. And that's what makes America great, is the opportunity to have those choices and to have the kind of uh, deep and rich services and resources that are available. And I think the Columbus community should be very, very proud of that fact. Now, what happened during the pandemic is nothing short of extraordinary. How these hospitals came together to collaborate to develop a surge plan, including taking over the convention center and then working with the state and and Governor DeWine divided up the region, the state into three regions. And we had responsibility for Central uh, Ohio down to Southeast Ohio collaborating with 40 community hospitals to create this plan where when there was a surge in one place, we could address it across the entire region. That plan was started here in Columbus, by us getting together and then extended by the state to make sure we brought everyone in. Couple of things. Our level of collaboration here in Columbus among these these four institutions, I think definitely is a reflection of what what the city of Columbus and the Columbus Metro area is all about. The Columbus partnership. This idea of organizations coming together on behalf of this greater geographic area to support its economic development to support its well-being and its growth. And because of the firm foundation and the history and the culture that exists in Columbus, we were able to come together as health systems in ways that I think other we saw in other cities and other parts of the country where it wasn't so easy and where state government had to come in and, you know, help them get together. We did that naturally. We came together long before anyone said to us, you need to do it. We did it voluntarily. And we did it out of this, this shared vision and culture that exists here in Columbus. That is really what has been called the Columbus way. You know, that's paid dividends. Uh, and I think this is the best example that I can give you for how successful it's been.
0: Okay. Well, Thank you so much for being so thank generous you. with your time. And My stay safe out there. You too. Take
1: care. Be well. Thank you.